this book since our, our days of Sunday school. And that led one scholar to say, Jonah, Jonah is a book that is, is it's most widely known, but it's probably the least understood. It's most widely known because we know this, of this incredible story of Jonah and the whale. And we even use that in our vernacular, vernacular these days when we're talking about rebellion. You know, we say we don't want to be in the belly of the whale, you know, so to speak, and we refer to Jonah. It's widely known for that incredible story, but it's probably at least understood because uh, the passage, the, the section that deals with the fish is only 11 verses long. There's 37 other verses in the book of Jonah, 37 other verses to unpack for meat and theological punch. So we're going to spend the next few weeks, um, the next few months, excuse me, um, dealing with the message, the full message of Jonah. It's bigger than a story, bigger than a fish story, so to speak. With that in mind, let's, let's read our passage for this morning. We're going to begin in Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to jump to the last chapter, chapter 4, and read verse 11. This is God breathed. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Chapter 4, verse 11. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Let's pray. Spirit, on our behalf, we ask that you would disrupt, intervene, meet with us, take our programs, take our prayers, take our songs, and take this passage and sabotage us with them. Spirit, if you are here, if you are working among us, and if you are turning our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, we do not labor in vain. And so, Spirit, would you cause the scales to fall off our eyes? Would you cause us to recognize and see the great grace of the Father on our behalf? Would you cause us to see ourselves as we truly are, broken, wretched sinners in the hands of a good and gracious God? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A few weeks ago, uh, the golfing, of the, uh, golfing event of the year took place not far from here in Augusta, Georgia. Uh, many men fought for the coveted green jacket of the Masters, and I will readily admit I am not a golf fan. Uh, I, I watched golf only during the Masters and only when I'm trying to take a nap. There's something about Jim Nance's voice. It just puts me to sleep. It's great. Um, but I will watch the Masters. It's kind of like the Super Bowl of, of golfing events. And something interesting happened this year. I don't know if, if you caught it. It, it was very subtle, and, and I can't even remember where I saw it. I think it was either on ESPN or they had tweeted this. It was, a, it was just a one-question survey. A one-question survey. They asked this question. They said, how would you feel if Tiger Woods won the Masters this year? How would you feel if Tiger Woods won the Masters? And we kind of go, this is an odd question. I don't understand the question. Um, and it's odd because we may not know the history. And, and I'm not going to go into Tiger's history too much, except to say this. Um, all his dirty laundry has been aired over the last year. All of his dirty laundry for all of the world to see, all the public to be witness of. Several infidelities that led to the breakup of his marriage. Um, and someone even suggests um, it's, it's part of the reason why he hasn't played golf very well since then. Um, everything was aired out in the open. And so outside of a, of, of a question, you know, it wasn't a question based off of, you know, how big a fan are you? You really want to see Tiger win? Let's hear it for Tiger. There, there's, a, there's a question behind the question. The question was this. Um, there, there's a line that we create in our hearts. 
there's a line we all create. It's, it's a line of pity and compassion. On this side of the line, if someone behaves in a certain way, we will have pity. We will have compassion. But there's a line. If someone moves beyond this line, if someone acts beyond this, this particular behavior, it moves from pity and compassion to judgment and anger. And what the survey wanted to know is, has Tiger done that for you? Has he done that for you in your mind? A very subjective question. For some of us, we love golf so much. We want to see the game prosper. We're thankful for Tiger for putting it you know, back on the sports scene. He's made it mainline again. So there's not much that he could do to really tarnish his opinion our opinion of him in, in our mind. But then there's some of us, and allow me to meddle for just a second, there's, there's some of us in our families and in our lives that have been rocked by infidelity. It may have been your parents. It may have been your spouse. It may be some close friends. And so when you hear of, of a, public, a public affair, this strikes a chord with you. And compared to someone else, your line of mercy and compassion might be a little shorter than most. Because that resonates with you. You can't help but feel a pain in that situation. So this leads us to a couple of very important questions this morning that we have to wrestle with. Who draws the line? Who draws the line of mercy and compassion pity? Who draws that? Because if it's you and me, that is so subjective and we're never going to agree. That's raking mud. Who draws the line? Secondly, where is it? If we're not the ones who draw it, where is the line? Where do we stop with mercy and compassion? And, and where is it okay to be angry and to exercise judgment and justice? Where is the line of compassion? Where is it? Our passage deals with those questions this morning. And just to put it simply, the passage tells us that God and God alone draws the line. He will place it where he will place it. He will have compassion on whom he will have compassion. And he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. And that is our good news this morning. And as we discuss this great compassion, this great pity of God, I want us to focus on three things this morning. Three aspects of his compassion. First, the heights of his compassion. So if you're taking notes, these are our three points this morning. The heights of God's compassion. How high will he go? How far will he go? Where exactly is that line of compassion? Second is this, uh, the vehicle of God's compassion. How is he going to communicate this to people? How will we know? How is he going to do it? Thirdly and lastly, the motive of God's compassion. Why is he being so kind? Why is he doing it? First, the heights of God's compassion uh, and pity. Look with me back at verse 2. Look at his call uh, to Jonah. He says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. So we know that God's compassion and pity are directed at this people of Nineveh. And what we need to understand is, is that Nineveh is just more than a neighbor. We've got the nation of Israel here in the south, and we have Nineveh, this capital of Assyria. And they're more than just neighbors. There's a history here. They're more than neighbors. They're enemies. They're national enemies. At one time, Nineveh occupied Israel and the acts that they performed on Israel were atrocious. They're horrendous. They're unspeakable. One commentator kind of gave a, a modern-day parallel. He said, imagine it's 1966, the year after World War II ends, and, and, a, and a Jew was able to exile himself to New York, escape the Nazi party, and, and start a new life with his family in New York. And it's about a year later, things are thriving, things are moving forward, and his rabbi approaches him and says, I've had a vision from God. You need to pack up your things. You need to leave right now. And you need to go to Berlin. Because God wants to show mercy 
And God wants to show compassion. God is drawing his line of mercy and compassion around Berlin. And he wants you to be his vehicle. You sense in the emotional weight of what's being asked of Israel, what's being asked of Jonah here. This, this is not just neighbor. He's not asking Jonah to go to the Shire, these peaceful people that are just ignorantly guarding and, and, and tending to their life, uh, unawares of, of what's going on in the world. No, this is their national enemy. There's history here. There's baggage. And you want to kind of say, okay, pause. You know, Lord, can we have the room for a second? You want to go where? You want to go to Nineveh? And what's interesting about Nineveh is this, you know, we're coming off the context of, of the Old Testament, right? And we're, we're supposed to be reading the scriptures from left to right, from Genesis to Revelation, like we would a normal story. And we've seen God exercise his, his righteous judgment and wrath. We see in, in the beginning of Genesis where the wickedness of the earth, the whole earth, the whole globe comes before God. And what does he do? Save but a few, but Noah and his family, he starts over. He wipes the earth clean of humanity and he starts again. Fast forward a little bit further in Jonah. Another city, their wickedness comes before the Lord, and he senses it. And save but a few, Lot and his family, God says, I'm going to rain down my judgment and anger on this city. And the scriptures tell us that that sulfur, flames of sulfur came down and consumed the city and raised it to the ground. And so now we come to Nineveh, this, this wicked city, and its wickedness has come before the Lord. But it's not just wicked, we're given more detail. This is the enemy of God's children. This is the enemy of God's nation. How would you feel when your child comes home from school? What would your emotional levels be if your child comes home and he's got a black eye and you find out there's a bully in school? It changes the game, doesn't it? You're about to get a parent on the phone. You're about to get the school on the phone. That line of mercy and compassion, it is going to be a very short line. You're going to exercise judgment and people are going to hear about it. And what we need to see in this passage is that's not what God does. God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm moving the line. Once they were enemies, but I'm eager to show them mercy and compassion and pity, reminding us of this very key point. God draws the lines, not us. God draws the lines, not us. Again, allow me to meddle for a minute. We can't move on until we, we let that truth sink in because we love drawing lines. We love drawing lines of mercy and compassion, and typically we draw them much shorter than the Lord. We can't outlove Him. We can't outshow mercy. We can't be more compassionate than God. We draw lines that are much shorter than His. So the question for us to wrestle with this morning is, where have we drawn those lines? What are those things that if we see happening in this world, you will see my anger and my judgment more quickly than you will see my mercy and my compassion? Where do you see those lines forming in your heart? When do, when do you start redlining it emotionally going, someone's going to hear about this? Where's that line? Secondly, this, you need to ask yourself, who's on the other side of it? Who's on the other side of your line? And why are they there? Is it a, is it a person? Is it an individual, perhaps a family member? Perhaps it's somebody you don't know very well, but you've placed them on the other side of the line. They don't have your mercy, your compassion, your pity. They have your secret, your quiet, your anger, your judgment. Who is that person? It could be a group. It could be a denomination, it could be a school, it could be an organization, it could be a corporation. Who is on the other side of your line? And being aware of that this morning is, is, is not enough. What we need to do with that is, is we need to confess that before God, before the one who draws the lines. We need to let the Lord know that we've done that. He's already aware that we've done it, but he needs to know that we know that. That we've drawn lines of compassion shorter than his. 
We have placed people there that perhaps he is showing mercy and compassion and pity to. It should lead us to repentance. It should lead us to a strong sense of confession. God draws the lines. Second thing we need to consider this morning is, is the vehicle of God's compassion. Not only is he going to be the one who draws the lines, but he's going to be the one that communicates it. And notice how he does that. He uses a prophet. Look with me at verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Now we don't have a lot of history uh, of Jonah in this passage. Uh, we don't have a lot of backstory. We don't have his, his pedigree in the book of Jonah. But we do uh, see his name popping up in scripture in one other place. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the short version. A second Kings 14 under the reign of, of King Jeroboam, he needs a prophecy from the Lord. And, and how you knew a prophet was a real prophet is if he prophesied and it came true, right? No brainer. And so he calls for a prophet and, the, and this, this man comes forward and, and he get, Jeroboam gives Jeroboam this prophecy and it comes true. And so what you have is this bona fide, you have this certified, you have this man that has spoken on behalf of the Lord and it came true. He has the stamp of approval. He's become a prophet of the nation of Israel and his name is Jonah, son of Amittai. And what we see here happening in this passage is we see God not trusting this message to a donkey, not trusting this message to some man off the side of a mountain. He gives it to one of his own. He says, my compassion is going to be communicated through my vehicles, and that vehicle is my people, Israel. They're not going to be the elite. They're going to be the elect. That's what they're called to do. That's what the elect are called to do, to communicate God's kindness. The elite harbor God's kindness. The elect transmit and display and communicate God's kindness. And God says, they're going to hear of my kindness through my people, my prophet Jonah. And he is not ignorant. He's not unaware of what I'm asking him to do. He's very aware of what I'm calling him to do. And he will be my vehicle. And what we need to wrestle with this morning and what's so sweet about this passage is packaging communicates value. How you package something communicates the value of what you're sending. Let me illustrate. Um, last week was, was kind of tax weekend, uh, maybe 10 days ago, tax, tax week. And for most of our evenings, we've been at home with our CPAs and with our TurboTax software on our computers um, because our financial livelihood is kind of tied up in this one document that we've got to get into the state's hands and in the federal government's hands. And if you're like me, you don't trust something like that just to the Pony Express, right? I don't guesstimate how much, you know, postage is needed. I don't throw it in a manila envelope. What do you do? I FedEx that sucker, right? I bubble wrap that thing. I don't put it in my mailbox. I go to the post office and I give it to the postmaster and I want to see it in his hands and I want it certified. And I want to know that when it gets there, it has gotten there in the time that I have allotted it to get there and it's on time. And I want it there tomorrow. Ricky tick, right? So it is in God's kingdom. He tells Jonah, arise, I'm FedExing you. This message is very important. This is a message of mercy and compassion. And I'm not just sending some ignorant guy off the side of a mountain just to speak words like a puppet. I'm sending one of my people communicating this. You ever received the mercy and the grace and the compassion of God? God has formed his bubble around you too, Jonah. And now you have the, you have the opportunity to go share that with somebody else. That's what separates the elect from the elite. The elect transmit God's kindness. The elite, they harbor it. And God wants Jonah to communicate his kindness to Nineveh. Um, 
Search your minds, your hearts, your own narrative for just a minute. Who did that for you? If you're here this morning and you are a son or daughter of Jesus Christ and you've been reconciled to the Father through Jesus, that meant that somebody, that God sent somebody into your life to speak mercy and compassion to you. It may have been through a sermon. It may have been through an encouragement. It may have been through a letter. It may have been a family member, a roommate, a pastor, a cousin. Who was it? But there was somebody along the line. We're going to come back to that person in a minute. We'll move to our last point. Um, Why is God so eager to show his compassion and his mercy? What's his motive behind it? Why is he doing this? Why is he being compassionate to um, not just another nation, but the enemy of his children, the bully of his children? Why is he being compassionate? Because we have this, this sort of subtle skepticism in the 21st century, right? Whenever we see... Uh, philanthropy, we always look at it skeptically going, okay, are you really doing this because you're kind, because you're compassionate, because you really care? Are you about to run for some political office? Or you you just need a tax break? We're always skeptical of philanthropy. We're always skeptical of people who are doing things out of compassion and mercy. We kind of go, where's the catch? And so this morning, we've got to ask the question, is there a catch? What's the catch? Is God going for deist of the year? Is he trying to pad his spiritual resume? Why why is God being compassionate? Our passage gives us three evidences of why he's being compassionate. Look with me in verse 11. Chapter 4, verse 11. We'll do these one by one. This is God speaking to Jonah. He asks rhetorically, Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city? And by great city, what this means here is, is it's not great in the sense that, oh, I just went to this restaurant downtown. You've got to try it. It's great. It's a great city. It's huge. This is the capital city of Assyria. This is Nineveh. There are a lot of people there. And some people would, would suggest it's, it's about the size of Greenville, about 400,000 people. And so it doesn't take a marketing genius to go, you know, if, if you're going to send a, a message and a vehicle of mercy and compassion... And you get Nineveh, you get a whole lot of people. There's a whole lot of souls there. But, but God's heart is not just for, just for this one generation of people. It's for the next generation. Look what he says again further down in verse 11. In which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left. How old were you when you could tell your left hand from your right? How old were you? five, six years old? Who are the people that can't tell their right hand from their left? It's children. It's not just the people who can rationalize and understand that, yeah, we're wicked here. We're in the wrong. God's going, and it's for the next generation too. It's for their children. And so when they grow up, their parents will say, this guy came in our town and he said, repent. And we repented. And we've been reconciled to the father. And you can be too. And so they'll tell their children, and they'll tell their children. And don't be surprised if when you get to heaven, you look at your family tree and there's a branch in Nineveh somewhere. He doesn't just care about this one generation, this one city. He cares about the children too. He wants the gospel to flourish there. One last evidence, and then I don't want to make much of this, but he says there's also much cattle. People are important, but there's also creation. Why would I destroy all of that? Why would I not show pity? Why would I not be compassionate? 
what we see in this passage is, is there's no catch. There, there, there's, no, there's no small writing at the bottom of the page. There's no asterisks. There's no footnote. Why is God showing compassion to Nineveh? Because he promised he would. He's coming through on a promise. He said, I will always use my people. I will always use my elect to do one thing, and that is to communicate my kindness to the nations. I didn't make that up. The Lord did. That's what he told Abraham back in Genesis 12. He said, here's what I'm going to do for you, Abraham. I'm going to set you apart. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. Your family is going to look like the stars in the heaven. Your enemies, I will destroy them. I will go before you. I will make your name great. I'm going to give you a land. Why? Why am I doing all these good things for you? So that you may bless the nations. So that people can hear about me and my kindness and my pity and my compassion. No catch. No catch here. God is doing this because he's promised since day one. What I love about the book of Jonah is that more often than not, it's going to point us to Christ. Jonah in his thoughts, his words, his deeds, it's going to be so explicit. It'll be incredible. He's going to point us. He's going to be a shadow of Jesus Christ. But let me say this too. There are going to be times in Jonah's life where he's going to do the exact opposite. There are times when he's going to look just like Jesus. And there are going to be times where he couldn't be more opposite. And he's going to be this antagonist. He's going to be this anti-type of Jesus. We're going to expound on some of those. We're going to look at some of those that are pretty incredible. But this morning, I want to focus on how they're the same. And consider this. Consider what Jonah was called to do. Jonah was this Israelite called. Called by God to take, to take this message of his kindness, his mercy, of his compassion, outside the national borders of Israel. And not to just anybody, but, but to God's enemy and to Israel's enemy and to show compassion to them. So leave your borders. Leave home. Leave comfort. And go to this city and preach kindness to them. I'm sending you. You're my representative. What Jonah was to God's enemy, this people of Nineveh, this city, so Jesus is to the nations. What Jonah was to Nineveh, so God, through Jesus Christ, is to the world. Let me stop right here for just one minute. What Jesus is calling us out of is, is not this, this spiritual neutral party, this, this spiritual Switzerland we're not in a position of, you know, we're, we're not like the Ninevites. We're not like Sodom and Gomorrah over here, this, this wicked people. But we're not yet sons of God. We're just kind of this, this spiritual neutral party here waving this neutral flag. We're neither. We're, we're just kind of ignorant, right? And, and God says no. Just as Jonah goes to my enemy, my, my, my new people, Nineveh, so Jesus goes to the world. We are not saved out of spiritual neutrality. We're saved from being enemies of God, sinners before God. And here's the point. If we don't understand that this morning, if, that, if, not, if that's not what we believe, if that is not our orthodoxy, we're going to miss the message of Jonah. And what's worse, we're going to miss the message of the gospel. God doesn't save religiously neutral people. God saves his enemies. God saves sinners. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet enemies to God, Christ died died for us. Let me illustrate this with a few things. This gives me goosebumps. I love it. When Jesus was, was born, his mother and father took him to the temple to dedicate him like they were supposed to. You remember what happened? Simeon, who was promised that he would not die until he saw the Christ, he takes the child and he prays and he says, I can die now. For God, I've seen your salvation. And what does he say? He says, a light of revelation to the Gentiles. 
a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of Israel. It's both. A light of revelation to the Gentiles, to the nations, to the enemies of God, and the glory of Israel. He's both. Fast forward a little bit further in the story. Jesus has been baptized. He has, he's undergone this, this, this heavy temptation in the wilderness. And he begins his public ministry. Where does Jesus go first? Does he go home? Does he go to Jerusalem? Does he go to the temple, to the synagogue? No. He goes into the heart of the nations. He goes up to Cana. He goes into Galilee. He goes to the nations. And there's a party that's not quite a party yet. And he says, we need more wine. And he turns the water into the wine. He begins his public ministry in the nations to the Gentiles. Fast forward again. John chapter 21. Jesus is talking to his disciples about his death. This is what he says. He says, when I'm lifted up, referring to the cross, I will draw all people unto myself. All people unto myself. And, and finally, it's cemented in this. Acts chapter 10. You remember this story. Peter's on his roof. He has a vision. A white sheet comes down. Unclean. Clean animals. God says, nothing is unclean anymore. Now go and tell the centurion. And he's invited to his house. And centurion says, you have a message for God for me. And this is what Peter says. God doesn't show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation. God doesn't show favoritism. He accepts men from every nation. John 3.16 does not say, for God so loved Nineveh that he gave his one and only prophet, Jonah. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, Jesus Christ. And what we need to wrestle with this this morning, and I'll, I'll close with this, is at some point in our life, God looked at the line, the boundary of mercy and pity, and he moved it so that you could be included in it. If you're a son or daughter of the Father this morning and you've been reconciled unto him, God moved that line of pity around you. He didn't exclude you, he included you. And he used somebody, he used, he used one of his people he used one of his elect, not one of his elite, one of his elect to come and serve you and preach to you a message of compassion and pity. And if God has been so kind to do that to us, you know what that forces us? You know what that causes us to want to do? We've got to revisit and perhaps erase some of our own lines. May it be so. Let's pray together. Father, may we never lose sight of your great mercy and your great compassion on our behalf. Father, yes, we are image bearers. Yes, we are the crown of creation. But as we'll sing in just a minute, we're, we're wretches. We're blind. And so we ask that you would cause us to see what you've saved us from. While we were enemies, while we were sinners, you, you died and you rescued us. And I've shown your pity and your mercy and your compassion on us. Now grant us the grace and the courage and the want to to erase our man-made lines, to remove those who we've put on the other side of our line of mercy and compassion and be as compassionate and merciful as you are. We pray this in the name and the power of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.